Thank you, Owen, for leading us in worship. My name is Dave, and I'd like to add my welcome to that which Atty gave you at the beginning of our service. You may be a Foundation regular, or you may have just tuned in for the first time today. Whichever, we're delighted to have you uh, with us for this online service. A few weeks ago, we started our current series entitled Faith That Works, in which we're going through the letter that, the, that James, the first century leader of the church in Jerusalem, wrote to believers, Jewish Christians, many of whom were now living in exile beyond the borders of Israel. It's possible that the Christians to whom he was writing had fled Israel in the face of persecution, persecution that followed uh, the uh, martyrdom of Stephen. And so they were now scattered and living as refugees in foreign lands, amongst people with different beliefs and different values. They must have felt quite out of place. And very often, when that's the case, we do all that we can to fit in, to be accepted. We don't want to be seen as different. We can feel the need to adopt the values and behaviors of those around us. Some years ago, I was working in the United States, and my family were all there with me. I remember how the kids in the local area gathered around my two boys uh, the first few days and asked them to speak to them because they were just intrigued by this different uh, tone, this different uh, dialect that my sons had. And very quickly, uh, my two sons started speaking with an American accent so that they would fit in with the other kids. We ourselves adopted certain phrases and terminology that wouldn't normally have been part of our vocabulary uh, here in the UK, speaking of the parking lot or the trunk instead of the boot of the car. These are trivial examples, but I guess we can all think of things we've done or compromises we've made in going along with the crowd. It's into this context that James writes this letter. His concern is that they may be struggling to live out their faith in the face of the many trials and temptations they would be facing in exile, to which he refers just after his opening greeting. He covers a whole host of topics. It's a fast-moving letter in which he touches on a subject and then moves on to something else, possibly returning later to add more detail to what he started to say. And we'll see some of that in what we read today. It's a letter that contains many challenges to his initial audience, but also to us as to how we're living as Christians. You see, James wants nothing to do with superficial Christianity. He's determined that his readers should take following Jesus seriously. His message is that when we decide to follow Jesus, it should, no, it must result in our lives changing. If there's no change in the way we live, it calls into question our very faith in and love for Jesus. Our decision to follow him starts us on a journey of seeking to become more like him. We'll never in reality, in this life, achieve the sinless perfection that he displayed. But through reading our Bibles and living out what it says, we can take steps to becoming more like him. So far, James has covered how we deal with trials and temptations, about us not showing favoritism, about the power of the tongue for good and evil, and about wisdom. Before we read our passage today, I want to ask you a question. 
Who's in control? Who calls the shots? I don't mean in church. I don't mean in our country or even the place where you work. No. Who's in control in your life? Last year, the Science Museum in London had an exhibition with the title, Who's in Control? It was about driverless cars and the advance of artificial intelligence capable of making uh, 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 machines which uh, make decisions on their own. For many of us, that's a truly frightening thought. Not so much the thought that something may go wrong, rather the thought that we won't be in control. Whether it's driving the car or using the television remote control, or deciding where we go on holiday, or making the key decisions at work, some of us always want to be in control. Today we're going to see what James has to say about our need to live in submission to God, about giving over the controls to God. The real test of our faith is whether we're prepared to submit to his will for our lives, to recognize that he has plans set out for us and that he knows best. This is faith in action, faith that works. We're going to look at the final section of chapter 4, just five verses, verses 13 to 17. The passage will come up on your screen, but I'd encourage you to follow it in your own Bible or on your electronic device. So James chapter 4 and verse 13. Now listen, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go to this or that city, spend a year there, carry on business and make money. Why, you don't even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogant schemes. All such boasting is evil. If anyone then knows the good they ought to do and doesn't do it. It is sin for them. This passage has a number of messages for us. Firstly, we need to recognize the arrogance of presumption. Not for the first time, James presents a bit of a role play, an imaginary scene featuring a businessman seeking to implement his business plan and in so doing, to increase his wealth. It could be one of these exiled Christians, although some commentators believe that James is broadening his message here, that he's addressing the wider community. What James describes here is not unusual for the time he was writing. The first century was, we're told, a period of great commercial activity. Many Jews had settled in cities around the Mediterranean region, for commercial reasons, and they were active in business ventures. As with those in business today, they were seeking to make a profit and always had an eye on a new lucrative opportunity. I spent my whole career in the commercial world, not as an entrepreneur running my own business, but in running businesses that were owned by shareholders and stakeholders. 
A key part of my role was to devise plans, usually with a three-year horizon, and then to put these plans into action. Implementing those plans would have required us to invest money and resources, but the end goal was to increase the profit of the business. In this section of his letter, as we'll see, James isn't speaking about their desire to increase their wealth. He does have something to say about that, and we'll come to that when we look at chapter 5 next week. He's not even issuing a warning against planning ahead, per se. If it's not a warning against planning ahead, or about seeking to increase their wealth, then what's the problem? The issue that James is addressing in verse 13 is the sheer arrogance displayed in a businessman presuming that he can go where he likes and when he likes to start a new venture and that that new venture will make money. It's the belief that his success will result solely from his own efforts, his own wisdom and resources. It's that belief that leads to arrogance and boasting. Many articles on rich and successful businessmen and entrepreneurs describe them as self-made men. They may even have used this term to describe themselves. Benjamin Franklin has been described as undoubtedly the original self-made man and the greatest exemplar. In 1872, Frederick Douglass, an American social reformer and statesman, gave a series of lectures on the subject. He wrote... Self-made men are men who, under peculiar difficulties and without the ordinary helps of favoring circumstances, have attained knowledge, usefulness, power and position and have learned from themselves the best uses to which life can be put in this world and in the exercises of these uses to build up worthy character. They are the men who owe little or nothing to birth, relationship, friendly surroundings, to wealth inherited, or to early approved means of education, who are what they are without the aid of favoring conditions by which other men usually rise in the world and achieve great results. How awful. I hate that expression. It's clear to us from Scripture that there is no such thing as a self-made man. It is God who created us. Our physical being, our personality and character, our abilities and our intellect. It's God who determined where and when we were born, who our parents were, whether we're born into a privileged or lowly environment. And it's God who sustains us from our first breath to our very last. When Jeremiah received the call to be a prophet, God said to him, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. Similarly, when Paul was describing to the Galatians his background, after recounting his rise through Judaism and his persecution of the church, he says, But when God, who set me apart from my mother's womb and called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I may preach him among the Gentiles. 
Please don't misunderstand me. I'm not advocating that we simply wait for things to be handed to us on a plate. Far from it. I believe we have a responsibility to use the gifting and abilities that God has given to us to provide for ourselves and our families, but also to serve others, and in so doing, to give the glory to God as the one who made it all possible. James's caution to them and to us is about planning without reference to God and without listening to what he's saying to us through his Holy Spirit. And it's a reminder to us to hold our plans lightly because we don't know what the future holds. We're only 20 years into the 21st century, and yet we have many examples of where man's plans have been put on hold or thwarted. In September 2008, Lehman Brothers, a global financial services firm that had been around for 160 years, filed for bankruptcy, sending financial markets around the world plummeting. Hundreds of employees who'd enjoyed well-paid jobs and, and big bonuses and who doubtless had made plans about their careers and holidays and future spending were filmed leaving their global offices with boxes containing their personal possessions. This played a significant role in the financial crisis that followed, the effects of which were felt for years afterwards. In 2010, eruptions from an Icelandic volcano, the name of which I'm not even going to attempt to pronounce, disrupted flights around Europe and led to concerns over people's health, farming and the environment. And then, more recently, we've all been impacted on so many levels by the coronavirus pandemic. As I started to prepare this talk, I thought I would have been touring one of the Greek islands, enjoying some sun and relaxation abroad. Instead, my plans and those of probably every person in the UK, if not around the world, have been interrupted by this dreadful virus. Thwarted travel plans is minor suffering by comparison with the physical suffering and loss of life of so many. All these and many more examples we could think of serve to remind us that we are not in control and we're arrogant if we think otherwise. Secondly, we need to recognize our frailty and our dependence upon God. In verse 14, James writes, Why, you do not even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. James's response in this role play is pretty direct. He doesn't pull any punches. He starts with the time frame posed in the scenario, you don't even know what will happen tomorrow, and then he broadens it out to make a general comment on man's frailty. He describes the transient nature of our lives, comparing them to mist. If we think James's response to this imaginary question was harsh, Jesus was even more direct in the parable he told of a rich, a rich man who had a similarly presumptuous proposition. He enjoyed good harvests and was wondering what to do to store all of his crops. He concluded he would tear down his existing barns and build even bigger ones 
so that he could store all his grain and goods. And he said to himself, you have plenty of good things laid up for many years. Take life easy. Eat, drink, be merry. And then in Luke chapter 12 and verse 20, 21, we read God's response. But God said to him, you fool. This very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? This is how it will be with whoever stores up for themselves things for themselves but is not rich toward God. In our passage, James is echoing what Jesus talked about in the parable. The folly of the rich man, or any of us, presuming we are in control of our lives and can determine how long we will live. We've all experienced mists. They're very much less dense than fog. And as a result, they're easily burnt off as the morning sun's rays heat the earth. They can quickly disappear. How, that, how true that is of life. For some, death results from a very long, painful illness. For others, it comes swiftly with no warning. My own first personal experience of the latter was when my father died in his early 70s. He seemed pretty fit to me and played tennis uh, every week. But one morning, after breakfast, he sat in his favorite armchair to read the paper and was found to have died less than an hour later when a friend called to visit him. It was a huge shock to us as a family, but a sobering reminder of our frailty. I guess we all know of people of whom it's been said they died before their time, as if we have some right to determine how we depart this life, or as if we have some God-given right to the 70 or 80 years spoken of in Psalm 90. In saying this, I don't mean to be insensitive to the feelings of those who are left behind and who mourn the loss of someone who was very dear to them. I've known that sadness, so I understand it's not easy adjusting to the loss of a loved one. Of course, when James talks of our lives as a mist appearing for a little while, his comparison is not with what a typical lifespan might be, but with eternity. If we go right back to Genesis and the account of creation and the Garden of Eden, God created Adam and Eve for relationship with him and with the capacity to live forever. What spoiled it all was when they cho chose to ignore God's instructions, God's specific instructions not to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. He'd warned them that when you eat of it, you will certainly die. This was the only restraint on them. They had all the rest of God's creation to enjoy. But having been given by God free will and the ability to choose, they went against God's will. They sinned. And when they did, death, death both in its physical sense and in the sense of separation from God became a reality for them and for all mankind. In his letter to the church in Rome, Paul writes, Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, Adam, 
and death through sin. And in this way, death came to all people because all sinned. However, there is good news. While we will all die physically unless Christ returns while we're still alive, God provided a remedy for our sins and a way back to relationship with him in the form of Jesus. Jesus who knew no sin, but took upon himself the sin of the world, your sin and mine, and paid the penalty for it on the cross. Again, in Romans 5, Paul writes, For if the many died by the trespass of the one man, how much more did God's grace and the gift that came by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to the many? So then thirdly, we need to recognize God's sovereignty. And we read about this in verse 15 where James writes, Instead, you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. Having told his readers and us what we shouldn't do, James now provides us with the approach we should take to our lives. Remember that throughout this letter, James's desire is for his readers, is for them to become more like Jesus, for their faith to impact their lives each day, for them to live authentic Christian lives. Owen spoke last Sunday about us submitting ourselves to God. And that's not just a one-off act, that's a lifestyle. In this verse, James makes it clear that it's God who determines how long we will live. It's not just that he created us, but it's also that he sustains us. When we wake up, we should think, we should thank God uh, for the breath he's put into our bodies for a new day. But this verse goes far beyond that. James tells us that God's will extends to all we do in life. He knows us intimately. Just as he appointed Jeremiah a prophet, even before he was born, he has plans laid out for you and for me, and his plans for us will be far better than any we could possibly devise. It's arrogant of us to think we know better. We are to seek to discern his will as he reveals it to us and to do as he directs. The Apostle Paul gave us a great example of this when he was planning to do what to do and where to go. In Acts 18, we see Paul arriving in Ephesus and going to the synagogue to reason with the Jews. And when they asked him to stay, he declined. But as he left, he promised, I will come back if it's God's will. Paul was no stranger to danger. He'd been flogged and imprisoned. And humanly speaking, his life was under threat. But he recognized that his times were in God's hands and that if God so willed, both in terms of him remaining alive and in terms of God's plans, then he would return to Ephesus. Even Jesus, the Son of God, who was at one with his Father, said, For I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. Many of you are too young to remember the abbreviation DV being used in legal and other documents. 
The letters stand for the Latin Deo Valente, which is translated God being willing or simply God willing. There was a time when Christians and many non-Christians would have used the term or the letters routinely when announcing some future plans. I can remember the notices being read out in my local church and the steward would announce that the Reverend Smith would be taking our services next Sunday, God willing. There was a plan, there was an expectation, but there was also a recognition that our times are in God's hands. Eventually, the phrase became almost a cliche, a throwaway comment, and it fell out of use. Now, I'm not advocating that we reintroduce the terminology, but I am urging us to live our lives in utter dependence on God and recognizing his sovereignty. When we say the Lord's Prayer, it includes the words, Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Well, for that to happen, we have to be prepared for his will to be done in our lives and in every aspect of our lives, our careers, our finances, our relationships, our studies, our use of time, and so on. Does this mean we look to God to make all the decisions for us? Clearly not. We each face and make hundreds of decisions every day. So how can we try to stay in his will? Well, we've had many answers to this, even as we've been working through this letter of James. Owen spoke of two kinds of wisdom from chapter 3, urging us to draw on God's wisdom that will result in us living good lives and doing good deeds in humility. James has urged us to read our Bibles, and not just to read them, but to put in practice what we read. And then we have the example of Jesus, who spent time on his own talking to his father in prayer. In the Garden of Gethsemane, on his way to the cross, Jesus prayed, My father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me. Yet, not as I will, but as you will. And then later that evening, he prayed again, My father, if it is not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, May your will be done. In this he displayed total submission to the will of his Father. And friends, this is what we are called to do. James then adds a brief sentence at the end of the passage that we read that certainly applies to the previous verses, but also probably to the entirety of what James has written in his letter. It's a challenging verse. He writes in verse 17, If anyone knows the good they ought to do and doesn't do it, it is sin for them. Wow. He's told us of plenty of things that we should avoid doing because they're sinful. He's talked to us about not showing favoritism, of the need to guard our tongues and not to slander one another, avoiding selfish ambition and boasting, He's even told us that if we keep the whole law but stumble at just one point, then we're guilty of breaking it all. But now he's switching tack and telling us that if we fail to do the good that we ought to do, then that is also sin. 
Sins that result from us omitting to do something that we're asked to do are just as serious as the sins we commit by doing something we know to be wrong. James has also given us instruction as to some of the areas we can do good. He's told us to look after widows and orphans, to take care of the physical needs of one another, our brothers and sisters, to put our faith into action, to do good deeds done in humility, and to be peacemakers. When we fail to act in these areas, these aren't just missed opportunities. We need to call it what it is. It is sin for us. I'm not going to end there. We do need to take seriously our sin, whether of commission or of omission. And we need to remember God's provision for us in Jesus. We saw in the earlier verses of chapter 4 that we read last week what we need to do when faced with our failure to live our lives in a way that pleases God. We need to humble ourselves and repent sincerely before God. And as we do so, remember the promises God has given us in the verses we looked at last week. James says, submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. And later he says, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. As we commit ourselves to changing, to making progress in the areas where we struggle, and to do so not in our own strength, let's draw on these promises, on his grace and on the power of his Holy Spirit at work in our lives. And as we do this, we'll take small steps forward in becoming more like Jesus. So as we conclude, let me ask you that question again. Who's in control? Are you still clinging on to the controls in the arrogant belief that you know best? Or have you come to recognize your frailty and your dependence on God? On a God who is sovereign over all? On a God who has plans and purposes for each one of us? I pray that increasingly, Day by day, we'll hand over the controls to you, Lord Jesus, and submit our lives to you. Let's pray before Owen then leads us in a final song. Our loving Heavenly Father, we want to thank you that you know everything about us. I want to thank you that you had plans and purposes for each one of us even before we were born. And we want to thank you that your plans and purposes for us are good. Would you forgive us, Lord, for times when we've shown arrogance and times when we boasted about our own plans and what we intend to do. Would you forgive us for our arrogance and our pride and would you cause us increasingly to turn to you and to hear from you and from your word and through your Holy Spirit your plans and your purposes for us and would you help us to be obedient in walking in those plans that you have prepared for us Lord Jesus we seek to become 
more like you day by day as we implement what we are reading in this letter from James. We thank you for your word. Would your word please achieve all that it's been sent forth to do in Jesus' name. Amen.